Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. From the late 19th through the early 20th century, African-American intellectuals focused much of their attention outside the United States. They considered the broader global questions surrounding African colonization, immigration, and centuries of fraught social, political, and economic dynamics that involved African-Americans, Africans, and their descendants around the world. Yet while a good bit of attention has been devoted to the global engagement of numerous African-American political leaders, clergy, actors, and artists, little attention has been paid to the role black historians played in shaping our understanding of the African diaspora. Today we're talking to historian Stephen Hall, who is working this year as the Fellows Fellow at the Center on a new project that considers these contributions by African-American historians and scholarly institutions. Stephen, thank you for joining us. As I mentioned in my intro, a lot has been written about the African diaspora and about African-American intellectuals, activists, and public figures. But your work focused specifically on African-American historians and on their work about the African diaspora. What have you learned about this group of historians in particular? One of the important uh, issues here in terms of, I think, focusing on historians is we can begin to think more critically about three issues. And I think the first is historians really have uh, a critical database of information about the world. And so the training, of course, gives them an opportunity to access primary and secondary material, to travel to different archives in various parts of the world, to engage people. Uh, who are coming to the United States during this period from Asia and Africa and other parts of the African diaspora. And this then becomes a critical database that will be used throughout the first half of the 20th century to engage a number of critical events that are occurring around the world. And so this is central then to the kind of work that African-American historians will do in influencing policy decisions, in terms of creating uh, critical spaces for thinking about African and African-American studies, so these disciplinary constructs, and then I think in uh, other kinds of ways, providing uh, important uh, spaces to begin training the next generation of scholars in a wide variety of areas. And so that becomes one of the first critical issues. And then I think secondly, we have this uh, important uh, issue of community engagement. And so These historians, I think, play a very important role in terms of the way in which their work extends beyond the academy, that the boundaries between sort of disciplinary constructs and what's going on outside of the academy are sort of broken down in all sorts of interesting ways. And this has a lot to do with the way in which professionalization comes very slowly to the African-American Academy. The number of African-American PhDs is quite small. And so African-Americans, in fact, have to rely on a wide variety of actors uh, in the communities to provide critical information. And and so individuals who are coming, as I said, from other parts of the world, individuals who had already been engaged in thinking about the African-American past coming out of the late 19th century are certainly active uh, in a lot of these early spaces. Individuals with MA degrees play a very important role on faculties in the colleges and universities. And so that's an important kind of uh, framework. And then I think thirdly, One of the important issues here is the activist construct. So the the activism, I think, is critically important because there are so many critical events that are taking place as the nation and the world moves from the long 19th century into the 20th century. And this is a very chaotic sort of moment. And so there are many ways in which issues of race, class, and gender indifference are being reshaped. 
there are uh, new formulations coming into play. And so things like the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 play a very important role in terms of people beginning to think about this construct of the darker nations of the world, the implications of World War One in terms of this whole sense of people of color being involved in the military project but in segregated units. This is, of course, against the backdrop of a deeply expansionist and hemispheric uh, imperialist discourse that's being promoted in the United States. And so, and so that becomes then a critical kind of construct. The imperialist project, project of colonization in Africa, and then the uh, advent of the Pan-Africanist Congresses, uh, first conclave in 1900, the first Congress in 1919, and throughout the 20s, there's a very activist engagement on the part of historians with the global world and sort of thinking about the types of relationships that would exist between African colonies and the rest of the world and what role people of color in various parts of the world could play in dealing with what was really viewed as one of the real uh, social and political and economic crises of the uh, first half of the 20th century. I think those three important things, that there's a critical database of information, this important kind of communal engagement on the part of uh, African-American scholars and intellectuals, and then, of course, the activist component. Those are really three, I think, critical issues that uh, inform how individuals are thinking about these sorts of problems during this period. Your work spans from the late 19th century to the 1960s. And as you say, a lot happened during this time on a global scale. There was sustained transatlantic exchange. We saw the rise and beginning of the end of colonialism, the rise of Jim Crow in the United States, and many other instances of racial, ethnic, and national struggles. How do you, as a historian of historians, manage this time period, and how did your actors engage with these global developments? Well, I think they engaged them in a number of different ways. I mean, clearly, many of these individuals understood the importance of thinking about the condition of people of color beyond the boundaries of the domestic space. Uh, Robin Kelly has a wonderful article in which he talks about engagement with the global space as sort of a, a small part of a local phase. So this is a local phase, but then there's a global world out there. And so this is an opportunity to kind of think more broadly about what are the kinds of relationships that should exist between a localized domestic space and a broader international uh, reality. And so black historians are engaged in thinking about those projects because of a broader sense of necessity. But they see this reconstruction of sort of a racial prescription as it takes its form in Jim Crow. They see that as sort of linked to a imperialist discourse in uh, various parts of the Caribbean and other parts of the world and in Africa, a colonialist uh, discourse. They see this as uh, linked to a larger kind of project of empire that's being forwarded by various European powers. And so they are been uh, very interested in kind of thinking about the linkages between these sorts of realities. And so they use their engagement uh, and their understanding of the historical past to inform policy. And so one of the things that I talked about a little earlier is this are the Pan-African Congresses, which I think are critically important uh, in terms of the way in which they use these Congresses to uh, forward a complex agenda around protection. So in 1919, uh, African Americans appear, along with other colonial people, at Versailles. And this is a, a critical moment for many individuals because we see the collapse at the end of World War I of a major empires. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire collapses, the Ottoman Empire collapses, and so it leaves then a real vacuum for ethnic minorities around the world. 
And so this becomes an important site for agitation around these issues. And so uh, African Americans play uh, in critical role around these uh, issues as it relates to the African condition. And most notably, W.E.B. Du Bois and Rayford Logan, who will figure prominently in the piece, are participants in that conference. In fact, Du Bois is one of the organizers. And uh, Logan would, of course, spend most of his scholarly career at Howard University, but nonetheless would do some very important work around uh, this issue of mandates. So the German colonies, of course, because Germany is defeated, it loses its colonies in, in sort of what's called Southwest Africa. And so as a result, then, there is a real push on the part of the African-Americans who are there and Africans to push for other powers to take control of those colonies and to engage in a more humanistic kind of relationship between the colony and, uh, and the empire. So uh, this is a very important, I think, engagement. I think we see this again as it relates to things like the Italian-Ethiopian War uh, in terms of the way in which there is a significant organization. There's something called the African uh, Research Council that's organized at Howard University, which is organized by uh, Ralph Bunch and a host of Ethiopian immigrants who apparently had come both to the medical and the dental schools at Howard University. And so there's a critical core of Ethiopians who are very concerned about the situation in Ethiopia, and they uh, work to establish this African Research Council, which is not only an activist group around lobbying the government relating to the kinds of policies that should be pursued in relationship to the war, but also it's a critical clearinghouse for information about Ethiopia. So it goes back to that database idea that I was talking about earlier, and this then provides uh, an important undergirding for any type of activist work that's going to be done because it has to be politically informed, it has to be historically correct, and so it has to be informed by real information about the situation. So that is a critical kind of engagement that we see in that regard. So those, I think, are two examples of the way in which these sort of diasporic realities sort of inform uh, how African-American historians are thinking about these issues. I think that's what's so interesting about your work is that you're looking at historians, but the activism is so intertwined, right? When we think of historians, we don't necessarily think of them as activists. But in your case, it's really strong. Yes, and I think a lot of that has to do with the way in which we see historians and their proximity to the public sphere. So we see historians as kind of sequestered, as sort of in the ivory tower, as sort of disconnected from the lived experiences of everyday people. And in this case, what we find, at least in the first part of the 20th century, is that there's a long history of sort of contributionist engagement among black historians. And so um, many of these historians are kind of doing double duty in communities and also in the academy. And they see their work as sort of linked to ameliorating real challenges that are occurring in these communities. They can't be disconnected or detached. So this notion of scholarly objectivity and detachment has less weight, has less merit. And this is not only true, I think, for African-American historians. So we don't want to sort of make these historians exceptional. There are also white historians who may have a different ideological bent, socialists, communists, and others, or those working out of the older missionary or abolitionist constructs coming out of the 19th century who also have a similar kind of framework. And they work in tandem with black historians to forward this more community-focused framework. And so that then gives us a different way of kind of thinking about the ways in which uh, intellectual work can be linked then to our solving real tangible communal problems, both in a domestic context and also in an international context. 
So I was going to ask you exactly about this, about what differences you see between these historians, Mm -hmm. lay and professional, compared to their white counterparts. You mentioned the fact that they at times work together and that at times they're aligned in their goals, but there's also real differences that you see. Right. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I think one of the things that we see here is that these historians have a, a different kind of understanding of the broader world. Now, so again, I don't want to overemphasize that uh, because, again, I think that leads us to a flat and one-dimensional sort of portrait. And it it also leads to one which is binary, right? So the white historians are not what the black historians are, and I'm not sure that really works at the end of the day. There is a lot of interest. I've been looking at a really interesting book by a Salvatore called Disciplinary Conquest, which sort of looks at how uh, white historians are beginning to, in the same period that I'm looking at, late 19th century through about 1945. I'm going to 1960. And he talks about the fact that this is the moment when we begin to see an engagement with Latin American studies and Latin American history as sort of becoming essential to uh, the American disciplinary academic project. And so we begin to see the construction of institutes at various colleges and universities. So there's the acquisition of it is closely linked then to governmental imperatives to know and understand and to map Latin America is closely linked to dollar diplomacy and corporatist kind of frameworks. And it's closely linked to this idea of forwarding a certain type of American exceptionalism and sort of a control of the Western Hemisphere. And And again, going back to the Roosevelt framework. But black historians are doing something a little different in the sense that they are really linking their projects to broader social concerns. They are linking it to broader issues of race, class, and gender. They're thinking about the way in which they can harness these international forces to bring to bear on some of the real social injustices that are occurring in various parts of the world. They are seeking to forward a more deeply humanistic understanding of the kinds of relationships that should exist between the world's peoples. And so that then becomes, I think, a critical way in which they're kind of looking at and thinking about uh, their engagement with the world. And then that, in fact, then is really the important kind of backstory for subsequent anti-colonial movements, the civil rights discourse, the anti-imperialist discourse. It is then laying the groundwork for subsequent developments that we see in the post-World War II world, and then uh, as we come to the end of a study in terms of the 1960s. So 1960, that's a real sea change, but indeed these individuals are very much the forerunners in terms of uh, laying the groundwork for that particular reality to come to pass. You also care about institutions a lot in the account that you provide us, and in particular you talk about the role of historically black colleges and universities. In some sense, these are very American institutions, but in your account, they become incredibly outward-looking and engaged. Can you tell us more about the role of historically black colleges and universities in your work? Yeah, so I think uh, these historically black colleges are in many ways understudied in terms of their international framework. And we have seen some work uh, recently, Frank Gerardy's work, Forging Diaspora, Zimmerman's work, Alabama and Africa, which talks about the way in which Tuskegee, of course, is engaged with these broader kinds of um, projects of uh, agricultural and agronomy in in German uh, Southwest Africa. But I think what what I'm trying to do in my work, and it's an an obvious kind of connection uh, in the sense that most black academics, because of the nature of the American uh, higher educational system in the period, this is the height of Jim Crow, are largely segregated and are in 
uh, historically black schools. And these schools mostly are located in the metropolitan, these major metropolitan uh, areas, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and in Harlem. And uh, they play a very important role as a critical repository of individuals who are engaged in these projects. They are also then aided and abetted in their projects by uh, movement and migration. And uh, because of the socioeconomic stresses that are taking place in various parts of the world, we see a massive infusion of individuals coming from other parts of the world. And they play a very important role in shaping these kinds of projects. So black schools then become a center for uh, not only uh, intellectual activity, but also for activism. Uh, And of course, it's closely linked to the kinds of work that individuals are doing around dismantling Jim Crow. They become also repositories for collecting critical materials. So at a place like Howard, you have a Moreland Spring Guard Room, which is an earlier construct that's sort of in the 19s and 1920s. But then at the same time, you also have people like William Leo Hansberry, who's beginning to kind of do work on setting the groundwork for African studies. And he is uh, beginning to sort of create the edifice there for that kind of work. Uh, You have a a number of critical intellectuals at at Howard, uh, obviously, who are doing work around the New Negro Movement, which is both a framework that is domestic, but also it is is international in the sense that people are beginning to talk about the ways in which people of color sort of see themselves uh, in relationship to the broader world, uh, how they seek to organize themselves, the kinds of things that a citizen should be allowed to do, the sort of civil rights and human rights that they should have. This is also true at a place like Tuskegee, where Tuskegee's project, is, as I think Zimmerman and Gurdy have shown, is critically important, and it becomes something that's very attractive to elites in the Caribbean and in Africa who are looking for the building blocks of civilization. How do we then build a society independent of these colonial kinds of constructs that we see? How are we then going to sort of engage modernity? And they look to uh, Washington's uh, ideology of uh, essentially constructing all the components that one needs for civilization, not only the academic and intellectual apparatus, but the very material apparatus that one needs, the the land, the agricultural know-how, the uh, mechanical know-how. And many uh, West Indian and Africans are uh, very much attracted to this project. In fact, Marcus Garvey comes to the United States to see Booker T. Washington because he's very interested in this vocational discourse, an industrial discourse, what I call an industrial civilizationism, and how it can be applicable in Jamaica in terms of sort of building a a civilization or or a society uh, that has these components in which people of color can control their own destiny. So that becomes a very important kind of project. So uh, in all of these ways, in the sort of liberal arts or classical or more highbrow construct, we see black colleges playing a very important role. And then even also in the industrial construction. So these are all of the basic components of nation and nation building. So that's the next iteration beyond the what? Empire. And so that becomes a very uh, important sort of signaling, I think, in some ways towards the future possibilities that can exist. So black schools play a very important role in terms of becoming kind of critical incubators for these types of modernist sensibilities. The people you talk about just have such a broad spanning influence, and the legacy seems so powerful. I mean, even today, it seems like so much of this thinking and this work is with us. What do you think are some of the most important aspects of this legacy for us today? Well, I think one of the things that I want to focus on in the work is to begin to kind of think about where does this notion of a global come from? 
where did it begin? What were its origins? You know, why are we thinking? I mean, today we sort of see this as kind of a normative sort of framework. But indeed, many of these scholars were kind of thinking about the ways in which the world was interconnected. We, we say this as though it's sort of common knowledge, you know, we don't, we don't really have to think about it. But in terms of what these scholars were doing, they were sort of seeing and anticipating these kinds of constructs as sort of being a normative way of thinking about the kinds of inter interconnections that should exist. I think in other ways, they were also quite interested in thinking broadly about dealing with some of the civil rights issues that have continued to plague us in terms of thinking about, thinking here about uh, individuals like Merz Tate. Uh, Merz Tate was an African-American uh, female historian who worked at Howard University. She was a graduate of Western Michigan University and then uh, Radcliffe College, and uh, she worked at Howard as a diplomatic historian. And so she did work on, on Hawaii and on issues of sovereignty in, in Hawaii. She also did important work on nuclear disarmament. Uh, she wrote two books on nuclear disarmament in the post-1945 period and was really uh, signaling some of the uh, important issues that we sort of think about today in terms of nuclear proliferation, thinking about uh, who should have nuclear weapons, uh, issues of rationality and irrationality, which we, of course, are grappling with in the contemporary period, and also looking beyond, in diplomatic history, looking beyond simply state actors, but also looking at non-state actors and the way in which they shape diplomatic decisions. And this is certainly true that if we look at not only someone like uh, Merce Tate, but even people like Ralph Bunch, who was also at Howard at the time, who played a very important role in many aspects of the modern world, including uh, negotiating the um, ceasefire between uh, Israel and five Arab nations when Israel was founded in 1948. And then, of course, we can also look back, for instance, at the presence of someone like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who's a historian at the founding conference of the uh, U.N. in San Francisco in, in 1945. So this is a very interesting kind of project in terms of the way in which they're anticipating, of course, also anticipating the world that will be, and then, of course, playing a very important role in shaping it. What are your hopes for this work? Who do you want most to have read this, and what do you want them to take away from this book? Well, I think one of the takeaways I want from the study, I think, is that if we can think about the African-American historical project in broad terms, think about it beyond the sort of a domestic framework and think about it in, as an internationalist construct, one that informs our thinking about the global world, one that sort of gets at some of these broader social and, and civil rights and humanitarian kinds of projects. Also, it, I hope that it will help us to kind of think more about the kinds of responsibilities of intellectuals in terms of their connections to broader communities, the way in which the humanities can inform the lived experience of individuals in communities around the nation, and then, of course, also around the world, that scholars are relevant to our lived realities. Scholars are relevant to and can play a very, very important role in influencing how we live, how we think, who we are, what we want to become, what are our dreams and, and our hopes for a better future. And then I think in, in some ways, I hope that it will connect in tangible kinds of ways the 19th century African-American project with the 20th century project. And so it will give us a more holistic sense of what uh, the African-American project has been and its relationship to other uh, histories of uh, minority groups and then also majoritarian groups. How does it inform these kinds of constructions? And I think I hope I will also shed light on the kinds of linkages that occur between white and black historians of similar mindset, similar ideology, who are working for the same goal. So then in that sense, it then will give us a more 
uh, diverse and rich understanding of the American historical profession and what has gone on in terms of the kinds of uh, linkages that exist between black and white scholars and, and, and also other people of color. Thank you, Stephen, for walking us through this incredibly interesting snapshot of your work. And thanks to our audience for listening. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.